Uh, Rami Zemeric will speak. He's just negotiated 10 more minutes, possibly, but between 30 and 40, and 40 minutes. And then we'll have questions and answers that, that I will uh, field. But we'll certainly finish um, by 7.30, for sure. Rami Zarek is an uh, Gromley professor at the American University of Beirut and also a long-time activist for political and social justice. Born in Beirut during the 1958 U.S. Marines landing in Lebanon, he has witnessed two Israeli-Arab wars, one protracted civil war, one major Israeli invasion, one Israeli retreat, and one Israeli defeat. He studied at the American University of Beirut and at the University of Oxford. He has published over 100 articles, monographs, and technical reports on agriculture, food, environment, and education. His most recent book, Food, Farming, and Freedom, Sowing the Arab Spring, was published this May. And I just remind you that I failed to get copies of it. Uh, I in the scramble of my own, uh, my own travels. Today's event will be recorded, and we uh, earnestly hope that a podcast of this um, wonderful talk will be made available online, as it often usually is in the LSE. I would like you, we will at least, we at least have some leaflets, and it's an e-book, right? So that they can... Yeah, uh, it's also print, uh, in print. It's also in print, uh, but there's ways to access it online. Uh, so I would like you to um, welcome uh, Rami Zarek uh, to the LSC and to the News Center. Thank you. Uh, I have not earned the applause yet, uh, <laughs> and I hope I will by the end of the talk. Uh, uh, the, this, uh, well, first, thank, I want to thank the Middle East Center for inviting me. It's a fantastic opportunity. Uh, I was not a student of LSE, but uh, I used to come here very often to court uh, the person who became my wife later on and who did her doctorate here. So I have some very, very emotional attachment to uh, some of the places uh, here. <laughs> Um, this talk uh, summarizes the initial findings of a research project funded by the Institute of Palestine Studies aimed at exploring and analyzing the use of food as a weapon of oppression in Gaza. Before going any further, I would like to acknowledge my colleague and co-worker Anne Goff, without whom this work would not would have been possible. Anne is now preparing herself to go to Gaza to complete the field research part of the project, and no, she's not sailing on the flotilla, unfortunately. Actually, we had a meeting in this room with two people who were on the last Really? Week, yes. There's, there's one going now. Uh, when I was invited to speak here, I sent a general summary of what I could talk about. I was sent back a proposed title, Bread and Butter. It struck me that it was not bread and olive oil, because after all, this is what we traditionally eat in Palestine. Mind you, with the relentless and large-scale uprooting of Palestinian olive trees by Zionist settlers and the concurrent Western farming subsidies, dumping cheap fats and shortenings on us, bread and some kind of butter may unfortunately be closer to the reality. This is, in fact, exactly what I want to talk about today. How two seemingly unconnected phenomena, both originating from centers of power, 
and in few and in this case it is the Zionist vi uh, settler violence in uprooting of the trees and the violence created to the farming systems of the south by the dumping of subsidized foodstuff how these two seemingly unconnected phenomena both originating from centers of power and infused with their particular type of violence can collude to subjugate people and damage their social, economic, cultural, and ecological endowments. This is how the globalized bread and butter slyly comes to replace the localized bread and olive oil in our minds as on our tables. <coughs> that was the pre-introduction. We're living in a time of increased interest in food security and insecurity. The renewed, this renewed focus is due to drastic increases in food prices in the last few years. The revolutions making up the so-called Arab Spring have also piked interest in questions of food security and land use under repressive regimes. Approaches to food security can be grouped into two schools of thought. The first, based on a mainstream and corporate understanding of food security, is propagated by the World Bank and followers of the Washington Consensus in institutes including the International Food Policy Research Institute, IFPRI, and other CJIAR institutes. According to this school of thought, food security is achieved through intensification of production resulting from the use of modern technology, through GDP growth, through increased investment in the private sector, and through free trade agreements. The tangibility of food is addressed only as a matter of sustenance according to a baseline of caloric intake. IFPRI, for example, measures food security at a national level through a ratio of food imports to total exports. If a nation exports enough to pay for its food imports, then it is food secure. This methodology omits issues of land use, labor, and environmental resources from the import-export equation. This sometimes can be problematic. For example, through foreign direct investment in agriculture, multinational agribusinesses are able to lease or purchase large amounts of a nation's land, often at advantageous terms. Food that technically is produced on the soil of a nation and exported from it does not necessarily benefit that nation as revenue to pay for its own food imports. One of the problems with this, what I call the corporate approach, is the assumption that markets will function equitably, despite the fact that their historical orientation has been to do exactly the opposite. Rarely are the root causes of conflict and poverty ever acknowledged in studies of food security. Policy makers fail to see that institutions of power dictatorships or corporations act to consolidate and reproduce their own authority. It follows that think tanks, like IFPRI, see the struggle for food security as a permission, not a right, or rather not as an entitlement. Permissions involve an allowance of something without actually diminishing the dominant power. An entitlement necessitates access to power. There is another school of thought, 
most recently exemplified by Oxfam, the recent report, and the UN Special Rapporteur on Food, Olivier de Schutter. And I'm mentioning these because these are rather quite mainstream. I mean, ex Oxfam is not a revolutionary organization. And so it's getting increasingly into the mainstream. This approach is critical of government subsidies given to multinational corporations. It acknowledges the destruction of farming systems and the conglomeration of corporate power. The UN report of Olivier de Schutter advocates strengthening profits for smallholder farmers as a way to combat the depesantization, which is a horrible word that I can never pronounce, that leads to the proliferation of urban slums and to rising poverty levels. To recap, what's the difference between these two approaches? One of them assumes that food is a commodity to be speculated upon in financial markets, and one assumes that food is an entitlement that is multiscalar and multi-class. History bears witness to the power of food as a prime mover of people. Since the Roman Caesar's cynical Panametia chances, to Henry Kissinger's alleged quote, control oil and you control nations, control food and you control the people. Food has been recognized as a tool of political power. This is comprehensible. The relationship between food, farming, and people is inextricably linked to the sustenance of life on the planet. In recent years, the control of food has increasingly shifted from first world governments, where it was located, to corporations subsidized by those governments. The poor world purchases its food from richer nations. And look at this map, it's absolutely terrible. That's a map that shows who sells food to whom. All those in, in red buy food, and those in green, dark green, are the biggest food sellers. You can recognize North America and Oceania. Australia as the biggest food vendors in the whole world. The light green? The light green is... This, uh, sorry. The dark green. And the light green is... The light green, they sell a bit. Here, you have the scale here. Okay. Okay, but the red are those who are in the red on that. So the, the poor world purchases its food from richer nations, though it could produce its own food. This is the relationship between the center and the periphery and can be viewed as a food siege, a paradoxical one, of course. On the periphery, from the center, aid is applied to the periphery in order to ensure caloric baselines, but never independence from the center. This center-periphery relationship can become violent. In the last 16 years, 250,000 Indian farmers have committed suicide due to the work of corporations in the rehabilitation of the farming sector in India. Farm workers in Britain, by the way, as well as in the US, as well as anywhere else in the world, one billion live in the most dire condition. They are the proletariat of the universe, of, of I mean, the planet. In Gaza, the fishermen also suffer a similar situation. Those in the corporate food security world often cite food prices 
as the cause for the uprising in Egypt and Tunisia, while the truer and deeper reasons are oppressive dictatorships, rabid secret police, and prison networks and regimes. These are seemingly purposely missing from reports that do not draw the connection between power, siege, and access to food entitlement. I'll move to Gaza now as part of the work that we've been doing. Nowhere is this relationship more represented to the extreme than in Palestine. Israel uses food as a weapon in its siege and colonial project in Gaza and the rest of Palestine in much the same way that the center uses, that uses it against the poor world. Israel has made it seem that food insecurity is an unfortunate byproduct of a conflict situation arising between equivalent parties rather than a tool to control and subjugate the disenfranchised. People in Gaza are trapped according to Israeli permission, permission to access farmland, permission to leave the Gaza prison in case of medical or educational needs, permission to fish in boats along their own coastlines, permission to build, permission to dig wells. They have no entitlements, least of all food entitlements. Without entitlements, they have no power. Their entitlements have been forcibly extracted by Israel in 1948. More than three quarters of the 1.5 million people living in Gaza are food insecure or on the edge of food insecurity, according to the conventional sense, just calories. Over half of them are children. Reports from international agencies confirm that chronic malnutrition is pervasive, as are the health problems associated with it. Stunting, anemia, and wasting. Deficiencies like these limit cognitive functioning and contribute to behavioral problems. This dire situation is commonly attributed to the Israeli siege in place since 2006. Savagely hermetic, greater in severity than any of the 11 sanctions accepted by the UN Security Council, the siege is effective in curtailing access to food and undermining livelihoods. But the reality is far worse. Years before the siege, the people of Gaza suffered from high levels of food insecurity. A 2002 CARE Johns Hopkins University study found the rate of acute malnutrition to be comparable, and I quote here, comparable to Sub-Saharan Africa. In 2003, food insecurity afflicted 40% of Gaza's population. Loss of entitlement is a root cause of long-term degradation in livelihoods. In 1948, Gaza's population swelled with the arrival of 250 refugees fleeing al-Nakba. Today, UN-registered refugees make up the majority of the population. Their social and economic indicators reveal a consistent lack of well-being across the six decades of Israeli occupation. The geographical context of Gaza as a densely crowded enclave is vital to understanding the history of its food insecurity. I want to link here landscape geography with food insecurity, and this is rather rarely done for some odd reason that I don't understand. Gaza is 305 square kilometers, a tiny sliver of historical Palestine. It's one of the most crowded places on the planet, a conglomeration of refugee camps with expanding populations and diminishing livable space. A quarter of Palestinians under Israeli occupation live in Gaza. It is framed by a brutal Israeli military apparatus manifested through terror, control of food trade and food aid, farmland destruction, limits to fishing, and a general economic, ecological, and social blockade. Gaza's encirclement and imprisonment was exacerbated by the direct Israeli occupation, which enforced a policy of land confiscation 
and simultaneous construction of buffer zones. These zones carve up huge tracts of Arab farmland, arable farmland along Gaza's eastern border. Subsequently, 30% of Gaza's land of this tiny little sliver of historical Palestine remains inaccessible. The pattern of devastation and killings in agricultural lands and farmers are regularly shot and there are hundreds of YouTube videos shot by Western activists who show farmers being shot at regularly while harvesting their fields in order to make rockets from okra. The pattern of devastation and killings in agricultural lands has contributed to the breakdown of Gaza's farming system. Domination induces an increased dependency on food aid. We move to the food aid part. A total of 88% of the people in Gaza receive a type of food aid, some form. UNRWA's food program, however, provides only about 60% of the daily caloric need to the million refugee, one million, that depend on this aid. Food aid is therefore not adequate in alleviating food insecurity. 60% of the people of Gaza depend on credit to purchase food. That is, they don't have the money to go and buy it. 60% of the households assisted by the World Food Program are termed the new poor, which means that they have lost their income and assets and have no opportunity to replenish their losses. Their economic de-development and food aid incarceration is one of the tools of Israeli violence. Opportunities for earning income and buying food are scarce in Gaza, where the unemployment rate is now one of the highest in the world, at 45.2%. Gaza's households spent about 63% of their monthly cash expenditure on food. That's a significant chunk. One of the highest, by the way, on the planet. Some households avoid paying their utility bills or purchase food on credit as a way to cope with the persistent economic crisis. As if food security as conventionally defined is primarily predicated upon access and caloric quantities. That's what I said when I began. But to understand the reality necessitates a larger sociopolitical context. <coughs> the connections between hunger and the individual, the household, the community, the nation, and the international economy are often decontextualized by avoiding the political dimensions of land, which is necessary to produce food. It is this frame of reference that is often always, in fact, lacking in reports on Gaza. Many reports document the destruction imposed by the Israeli siege, but fail to link the policy of closure with the broader context of the occupation thereby extracting it from its political circumstances. Seemingly a willful obfuscation, these reports are the product of the anti-politics machine in the development industry. Now, I have here placed, uh, the, the, just for, you know, to take a slight break and talk a bit about it, the definition of food security according to the generally accepted definition, which is the FAO definition. It exists when all people at all time have physical and economic access to sufficient and safe and nutritious food that meets their dietary needs and food preferences for an active and healthy lifestyle. At first sight, that sounds really good, but it covers really very much. But in fact, in fact, 
that can be recast to include a lot of things that do not appear here and that are essential for food security, be it at household or at national level. Let me try this one on you. Food security exists when all people with full agency and freedom from fear of not having enough to eat have at all times physical and economic access to healthy farming systems and means of land reform. All people are entitled sufficient, safe and nutritious food made possible through the support of agrarian livelihoods. All people are able to meet their dietary needs and preferences for an active and healthy food culture. All people should be able to meet these determinants through mechanisms of democratic deliberation. So we have turned things around and introduced the concept that the development industry, the anti-politics in the development industry refuses to acknowledge. Let me go back to Gaza and talk a little bit about how did the situation in Gaza deteriorate. <coughs> well, it's very simple. Israel has systematically undermined, it has taken the food security definition, ours and that of the FAO, you know, looked at what are the components, the determinants of food security, and has systemic, systematically undermined every single determinant of food security. I'm going to go through some of them because they allow me to complete the picture of the situation in Gaza. Access to food. Access is formalized as entitlements. Because it is access to food, but also access to the precursors of food. These are bundles. You know, I, I use the SEN, Amartya Sen's definition here, and, and I, I don't think I need here to talk more about it. And, you know, this is the ABC of what you learn in this uh, university, and uh, most people will know about it. But uh, I just say it's a bundle of interconnected determinants. Employment, healthcare, land policy, environmental quality can all be included as entitlements because political rights and political access are linked to food rights and to food access. Access to water, for example, just to take it away a little bit from food to a precursor of food, is a prime example. Water in Gaza is often contaminated with sewage and military ammunition like white phosphorus that has been used during you know, the last uh, war on Gaza in ways that uh, um, make, uh, what do you call it here, Guy Fawkes Night, isn't it? You know, the, the big fireworks seem like uh, child play. Israel has blocked from entry, Gaza should have access, sorry, to the coastal aquifer, but 90% of, of this aquifer is polluted with sewage. 90% of it. So, might as well leave it aside. Israel is blocked from entry to Gaza all equipment necessary to repair the irrigation, plumbing, and sewage networks that it bombed and destroyed in 2009. Households that can afford so purchase potable water from private filtration companies. Those households that cannot afford such purchases consume less water, some surviving on as little as 20 liters per day per person. Just to to have a frame of reference, average water consumption in Israel is about 300 liters per day per person. And that's about what people use here and in the US. It's one of the highest rates in the world. <coughs> Tragically, Gaza was once known as an oasis laden with fresh sweet water. Between Egypt and Syria, Gaza was the traveler's first stop because of the flowing springs of Wadi Gaza and Wadi Beit Hanun. Can you 
Can you tell which is Gaza and which is not here? And that's the same aquifer. Land. Australian scholar Patrick Wolfe has termed a logic of elimination that stems from settler colonialism's most basic element, seeking territoriality. Derived from Wolfe, the difference between Israeli and Palestinian approaches to the landscape is the difference between dominion and inhabitation. After 1967, Gaza resisted the Israeli settlement enterprise with more organized training and arms than the West Bank. Israeli military forces spent an immense amount of resources trying to break Gaza. Indeed, up until 1972, Israel was unable to enter Gaza refugee camps during the night raid. And even during the supposed Oslo bubble, the settlement occupied some 20% of the land in Gaza. Today, 30% of Gaza's land is off-limit to its people. That's worse than what it was during the settlement. So the pull-out did not free land. It occupied more land. In 2005, the Israeli army disengaged from the settlements, removing the settlers from Gaza. However, in contravention to the claim that Israel was returning land to Palestine, they blew up structures in the settlement, leaving tons of rubble remaining in Gaza and a depleted water table from the intensive farming and excessive use. The destruction was in addition to the farmland and residential area that were destroyed between 2000 and 2005, further squeezing the population. Strategically and spatially, Gaza is the manifestation of the Zionist slogan, maximum Arabs on minimum land. If land was accessible, though, farming could give Gaza a stable source of food. With 7,000 hectares of arable land, Gaza's food production capacity has the potential to reach 300,000 tons of varied and diverse food per annum. During the global food crisis, Palestinian fruits and vegetables have been least hit by price shocks because they are locally produced. Farming provides jobs to over half of the workforce, with women composing a majority of the informal agricultural sector often as owners of small farms or working for family-owned businesses. Agriculture has also traditionally been a safety net after loss of employment in other sectors. People could often be absorbed into the farming system and saved from destitution. Today, these agrarian livelihoods, opportunities are almost unattainable in Gaza due to the damage wrought by Israeli violence on Gaza's farming system. A list compiled by the Goldstone reports reveals them, and that was before Goldstone's un unlucky editorial. A list compiled by the Goldstone report reveals the scope of the damage. Fields, vegetable crops, orchards, livestock, well, hatcheries, beehives, greenhouses, irrigation networks, barns, and stable. And that, Judge Goldstone cannot withdraw. Our agrarian livelihoods are, are you know, I, I place them really high on our recast definition of food security. But unfortunately, in Gaza, rural agrarians have the highest food insecurity of all the population categories. 69% of them are food insecure. And there is a reason for that that we'll look at in a little while. They are less stable, have less access to health services, and receive less aid than all other households in Gaza. These high rates of rural food insecurity are related directly to the occupation and the locking of Gaza's farmland into the Israeli buffer zones. So the buffer zones. Fisher folk 
are also limited by the imposition of maritime barrier, which you can see here, shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, beyond which they cannot pass. Additionally, farmer and fisher folk are individually targeted by snipers while at work in their fields and boats. Now, introduced in my other recast definition, the concept of agency, which I think is excessively important. One of the ways Israel has undermined the rights of Palestinians to determine their food and farming systems is through the Paris Economic Protocol, instituted during Oslo, in connivance with the, what had remained of the PLO and the Palestinian Authority, which became Palestinian Authority. Israel restricted its import of certain Palestinian products to protect Israeli company. That was the deal. While no such restrictions were allowed on the part of the Palestinian Authority to protect their Palestinian farmers. Increasingly, that, that, by the way, does this ring a bell? You know, that's how global food trade works. Increasingly, Israel is the only Palestinian trading partner. You know, does this ring a bell? The U.S. is Lebanon's only trading partner, practically, in food. Accounting for 81% of total trade in 2008, making Palestine vulnerable to dumping from the subsidized Israeli market. Dumping. The West Bank government offers no organized subsidies or support. They're not allowed to do that. Though there are reports that the Hamas government, you know the evil Hamas government, in Gaza, protects local farmers by restricting imports of Israeli products that Gaza farmers also produce. Such policies are crucial for Palestine and echo the Schutter's demand that the government plays a larger role, Olivier de Schutter, the UN rapporteur for the right to food, that the government play a larger role in supporting farmers. So you see, subservience of the Palestinian authority to the Israelis is not only expressed in some political concessions, the role of Hamas is also not only expressed in terms of political positions. When it comes to food, to the protection of agrarian livelihood, to agency, they are diametrically different. One works like all the subservient Arab regimes have always worked against the benefit of their own farmers. And the other, well, we have seen. Israel, availability of food. Israel uses availability as a weapon in the control of trade through the siege. This is a list of items forbidden by Israel <coughs> to enter Gaza. Could you please note the last one? The systematic destruction of farmland curtails food availability in Gaza. Here are two images. One shows agricultural fields and greenhouses near the southern Gaza border, and one shows the same area after Israeli incursions, purposely leveled it in 2003, way before the siege. Sufficiency. Sufficiency is the amount of food needed to meet daily allotted nutrition requirements. Included in it is also the ability to have enough food stock on a physical household and community level to protect people from shocks to the food system like shortages and high prices. The lack of sufficient levels and diversity of food in Gaza has also endangered its food culture, which is the basis of a healthy diet. 
In Gaza, the food culture reflects the landscape, once famous for fertile orchards and plentiful fishing. Coastal fishing, fish dishes laden with hot spices as well as the local Palestinian cuisine compose a diverse wealth of recipes, production and political history. And please do not underestimate the role that food culture plays and cooking in the lives of people. 20 years ago, Gaza was renowned for its large fish market, well stocked with sardines, mullet, red bream, and horse mackerel. Such markets disappeared in Gaza way before the 2006 siege, casualties of Israel's incarceration and de-development. By the way, that's how they calculate from documents leaked uh, from the Israeli army. That's how they calculate how much calories are allowed through the siege. I'm not going to comment about similarities with other people who put people in huge concentration camps. Imagine shopping for the necessary ingredients to prepare a stuffed fried fish, a Gaza specialty. Fish, fresh lemon, flour, fresh green chili, garlic, cumin, fresh dill, and hey, cilantro, See, you know, was not allowed to come in. Olive oil and salt. Fresh ingredients are more expensive or even unavailable because of the siege. To clean and stuff each fish, preparing a handcrafted meal unique to Palestinian coastal ecology has become an act of resistance. <coughs> Control through commodity production. Driving farming systems, those of you who, are int I mean, who know a little bit about how the world works these days, know, will know that most of the a lot of the staples that are exported, like grain, on which places like the Arab world practically lives, are produced in Canada and Australia and the US. While countries in the poorer world have been driven towards comparative advantage production of uh, perishables needed to move very quickly to satisfy Western palates hungry for freshness and diversity coming from the hands of those people who work in Africa and in other places in the world. That's what you see everywhere when you have tropical fruits all year round, all around you. That is the background to that. Now that has been, there's been a, a drive by the Washington consensus country, uh, uh, sorry, organizations, to drive farming systems towards export-driven commodity production. That has been its approach to food security. You sell, you get money, and then you buy. As evidenced by Gaza, such production can be used to exert control over livelihoods and economy. Let me show you how. The intensive production of cut flowers began in 1994 in Gaza as part of an aid project funded by the Norwegian government. The goal may have been Palestinian economic development, but Israeli agricultural corporations quickly became involved as suppliers of input and mediators of export to Europe. As the primary exporters of these easily perishable Palestinian products, Israeli companies have profited from the occupation. Now what happens is, of course, if the Eretz crossing closes during the 15 days of the harvest of strawberries, or of cut flowers, then the farmers have lost everything because there is no way to store cut flowers, nor is there a way 
of eating them. Now, that of, creates precariousness and fragility in a system that instead of producing food, producing export material. Gaza, of course, even if they wanted to do, would have the potential to annually export 55 million carnation flowers. However, due to closures at the, uh, and the siege, the flowers are more commonly found rotting at the borders, in storage or in greenhouses. Oxfam estimates that in 2008, carnation farmers in Gaza lost about $6.5 million because of the siege and closure. Dependency on export-based production, which was promised to lift them from poverty, has left farmers vulnerable to Israel's border strangulation. Companies like Agrexo, that are involved in Gaza and the West Bank, are heavily subsidized by the Israeli state through credit support, free water and land, and minimum price level. Equity, and that's my last bit before I move to Egypt. Implicit to food security definition is the idea that it should not be selective in terms of class, ethnicity, or other prejudice. Inequity, however, is the basic reasons why Palestinians are suffering from acute food insecurity. Their land is expropriated and given to others based on an ethno-nationalism that reserves resources for Jews benefiting from the law of return at the expense of the indigenous population. The Israeli occupation operates in a way to ensure inequity for all Palestinians living in historical Palestine, be it in the West Bank, Gaza, or in the Jewish democracy. I am, so, you know, I was being ironic, right? I hope you, you picked that. Legislation, beginning with the law of return of 1950, institutionalized Israeli colonization of Palestinian land and further prevented Palestinians living in 1948 boundaries from accessing judicial means to challenge such confiscation. That is the democratic part. Now, as I wrap up the talk, I have demonstrated, I hope, how food power has been used perniciously so that food insecurity becomes a tool of control rather than a byproduct of a conflict. We have applied it to Gaza as an example of a besieged geography under aggressive occupation, but this framework can be applied to other places. Let's take Egypt, for example. I don't have time to dwell at length on the subject, but I'll just use a couple of simple examples to illustrate my point. Briefly, Egypt's poverty rate is 42%, exacerbating food insecurity, even <coughs> under programs of subsidized bread. Egypt imports 60% of its wheat need, making it the world's largest <coughs> wheat importer. Don't you love this one? With Hosting Barak as uh, KFC. Egypt's status as a net food importer can be partially attributed to a changing diet patterns and increased desertification. That's fine. We have done. But that's not the whole story. It's also about land entitlement, in the same way as Israel controls land. In the late 1800s, Egypt's ruling class and collaborating elite, with England's help, instituted a policy of removing people from their farmland create large cotton plantations for shipment to England. Farmers and farm workers then became a landless labor class building roads, canals, and ports. Colonialism and its protectorate attire reconfigured the diverse Egyptian landscape in order to provide England with an inexpensive and endless supply of one commodity, cotton. Such actions also changed the functions of people, reproducing them as mere historical objects 
divorced from their food systems, what Marx called the metabolic rift. By 1900, Egypt was a net food importer. By 1900, which it continues to be. The situation in Egypt today is the following. Small farmers are being driven away from the land and agrarian livelihoods destroyed. So we go back to agrarian livelihoods. And with it, food systems, ecology, and food culture. Philip Rizek's short documentary, Pity the Nation, which is available on YouTube, documents the plea of Egyptian small, small Egyptian farmers following a process that started with British engineers putting in place a system of small dams and ending with the construction of the Aswan High Dam by the nationalist government. In order to reclaim fertility, far, these structures sorry, intervened in the natural process of annual soil regeneration. And I, I, I can answer how later. In order to reclaim fertility, farmers became dependent on synthetic fertilizer that were imported. The state used to subsidize the purchase of agrochemicals, but in the mid-90s, they reversed this policy and left farmers to their damaged soils dependent on expensive inputs. Concurrently, however, the state promoted capitalist export-oriented agriculture. The policy went hand in hand at three levels with the so-called liberation of land rents under Sadat's Law 92 and in partnership with USAID. Land-owning bourgeoisie were able to increase land rent on the basis of the free market and evict tenant farmers. This eviction sent rural agrarians into the city slums and made them net food buyers. The debasantized land was opened for export-oriented agricultural corporations. The Egyptian government under Mubarak subsidized this large-scale production, making luxury out of seasoned food available and exportable all year round to European markets. Incidentally, it's around that same period that intensive agricultural practices for export were introduced into Gaza. This large-scale foreign investment that focuses on quantity produced and exported without looking at who's producing, where it is sold, and what are the social and ecological implications are intrinsic to the neoliberal doctrine advocated to Egypt by the big financial institutions and applied to global farming systems. Today, 36% of the Egyptians are employed in agriculture. It is time, perhaps, to listen to them. In post-uprising Egypt, there are two interesting steps that have been taken by the interim government. And I learned yesterday about a third one. But one is to increase again state subsidies on large-scale domestic wheat and cotton production. This comes with promoting and supporting inputs that connect farming back to industrial produ production. Due to the limited information available at, to me at this time, it's too early for me to judge the impact of such policy on small farmers, who are the bulk of the Egyptian producers. But that's a welcome step, hopefully in the right direction. The other has been to review some of the land deals made under the Mubarak regime as foreign investments in agricultural production, such as in Toshka. Now, the, 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 the Egyptian regime rehabilitated desert land and sold it. You know, quote unquote, we never know how it, how it worked. Sold huge tracts of land to big industrial, industrialists and, and large-scale capitalists who wanted to produce uh, food for export on them. One of these was Al-Walid bin Talal. I hope he's not funding you. So I can talk about them here. This guy, okay. Well, I'll, I'll hurry then and say it before he decides to fund you. This Saudi investor, Al-Walid bin Talal, was one of the first to feel this change in attitude 
because of the, the reportedly sweet deal he had struck for land acquisition in Toshka, allegedly involving corruption, and which was rescinded and renegotiated. But the outcome, of course, was that Al-Walid's holding company will proceed with the investment on a smaller parcel of the original land. This clearly reflects the internal conflict Egypt is experiencing today between the pressure of people demanding democratic access to land and the reinfiltration of the neoliberal model under the cover of democracy, to use Joseph Massad's words. Con in conclusion, the conflict between the two schools of thought in food security finds echoes in policy debates in post-uprising Egypt. The debate is essentially about what kind of food system do we want to be part of, one where food is an entitlement or one where food is a commodity. When small farmers are unable to access their land or are de-developed by subsidized imports and agribusinesses, then food has been used against them as a tool of de-development. The results are resource depletion, economic instability, and high food prices. In Gaza, as I have shown, the situation is more extreme. The forces of neoliberal capital collude with the Israeli occupation to use food as a weapon of siege to control Gaza's economy, culture, and land. This makes the cause of strengthening the right to food and to protect peasant endowments all the more urgent in Gaza as in Egypt as elsewhere in the world. A revolution that does not change the power relations between the disenfranchised and the powerful, between the excluded and the included, between the center and the periphery cannot said to have succeeded. In Palestine, the new deal between Fatah and Hamas and the declaration of state expected next September will be meaningless without a policy to restore entitlements lost to Zionist colonialism and in the absence of a new project that prioritizes relinking Palestine <coughs> with the Arab world. Thank you. some time saying that food security, uh, uh, you know, the, the classical conventional approach to food security which links the purchasing power 
to available is uh, only uh, as, and it is an important yeah. but only a part yeah. of what security should be about and yeah. uh, the the and I put a recast you know definition yeah. which places agency and the ability to produce food you know agrarian livelihoods uh, also the the freedom from fear of not having enough food as extremely important parameters in food insecurity or food security and these cannot be uh, cannot be dealt with uniquely through the issue of uh, enough money and enough employment while money and employment are extremely important you know I hate to lose my employment and my money but uh, these alone are not sufficient to cast somebody and these alone are not the only tools and weapons that have been used to curtail food security in Gaza. Yes. Yes, my name is uh, Maulay Pongazana. I'm a student here at ES. Um, my question to you is the following. To what extent is, the, is your understanding of the authoritarian use of food, um, food policies? How, to what extent is it only contingent on the Israeli occupation of, of Gaza and Mubarak's policy in Egypt? How, can, how far can you generalize that in terms of trade models? Sure, you're absolutely. I, I, I mean, I, I don't. I didn't have time here to go into uh, the theoretical analysis uh, of that because it would involve me talking about trade. I alluded to it, but however, in several places in here, linking it to a global model, which I assume is reasonably known uh, by people. But be, and, and I refer to the latest Oxfam. Uh, uh, report, which is freely available, which you know, dissects that issue, and uh, <coughs> and that is not that's not n nothing new. Huh? I, I refer to you know the Roman emperors and Panem and Chichensis. Do, do, do you know the historical framework to that? Right, the Dupin des bread and circuses is is what uh, you know the population needs. So history shows that it's never enough. That even if you provide just food and game to people. There is a point where the seams crack from a number of reasons. So, so the model is, in itself is only temporary. For example, during the Arab uprisings, the response of the Arab dictatorships has been truckloads of food, but didn't stop anything in Tunisia, didn't stop anything in Egypt. I remember as the Tunisian uh, uprising was in full, full power, Mubarak was meeting with, uh, they, they had the, an Arab League economic summit in, uh, uh, in Egypt, and he like waved, there was a, you know, he waved with his hand, and this is nothing, this is only an economic issue, a jobs issue, we'll send them some, some uh, you know, trucks, we'll give them some raises, salary raises, and this will all be resolved. And look where he is. Now, the, at a global level, I mean, this has been, you know, there is a lot of work. Raj Patel's, for example, Stuffed and Starved uh, talks at length about this. There, there are, you know, there is a wealth of literature on the subject, on the use of food. Uh, Harriet Friedman talks about it under food diplomacy. Harriet Friedman. However, you know, a lot of people do not attribute to governments the willing, you know, that, that you know, it attributes it as a byproduct of government and a byproduct of corporates' desire to make money. Well, I actually would go one step further and say that, you know, since uh, uh, Kissinger and Earl Buzz 
and many others. I would link immediately the U.S., for example, policy, farm bill, policy of subsidy, to the first embargo in 1973, on oil in 1973. That was a very important step. This is when the U.S. subsidy in agriculture became so large and changed completely the face of agriculture in the U.S. Yes, with that. With regards to the, could you identify yourself? It's just nice to know who's coming. I am Miss Ataku. I don't know what else to say. You <laughs> human um, being. With regards to the disunity amongst the Palestinians, when would they unite themselves as to speak in one voice and get what belongs to them from? the Israelites, considering that Palestinians are not united among themselves, in which case they speak with different voices, which makes it harder for the more they are arguing, the more Israelites are taking their lands, and the more they send insecurity with regards to food and water. Okay. At first, urge you to use Israelis, not Israelites, okay. because of the connotations that it has. And I mean, they're very different things. I don't think the Israelis speak in the name of all the Israelites. That's my position, at least on that. The second thing is that, I mean, wh why should we expect some superhuman quality to the Palestinians? You know, all liberation movements, all people in the world have within them different perspectives and different views. This is the essence of diversity. However, they're united on a number of very important things. For example, for example, a vast majority, vast, of the Palestinians all want the right of return. Some members of the high political spheres are willing to negotiate that. But in the Palestinian camps, in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Syria, in the West Bank, in Gaza, the vast majority of the people speak with one voice, the right of return to the entirety of historical Palestine. So on big issues, now, they are united, as the people of Britain are united, as everywhere else. On smaller issues, they also have their you know, right to disagree and dissent. And I don't see why if somebody has been made a refugee and oppressed, they suddenly turn into this, you know, uh, some kind of superhuman characteristics that removes from them their humanity. But they're like everyone else, they're like you and me, agree or disagree on on issues, but I'm sure we agree on most of the important, um, you know, values. Um, uh, Martin Asser, um, uh, um, you mentioned there were three things that had happened in Egypt, and I only think I think you only mentioned two of us. Like the opportunity to yeah, thanks. Uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, for the first time, okay, I, I, about a month ago, I went to Egypt for a number of reasons. One of them was to attend the launch of the World Bank's new human <coughs> development report, which is called something like security development, you know, one of these catchphrases. And I was sitting there and, and uh, you know, uh, we met, I mean, I, I was sitting as an observer and uh, one of the sessions was opened by the minister of, uh, of, I think, planning. And he sat there and looked at the World Bank, 
and said to them, there are three words that brought people to Tahrir Square. Free market economy. That's what you're bringing us here. So beware of what you're doing. So and then we went to the trade unions meeting and all these new trade unions, newly formed, because before they were not, you know, there. And, uh, and uh, the trade unions, you know, listened, listened, listened to the people of the World Bank promoting their views about labor. And then one woman raised her hand and said, we want one thing from the World Bank. And the guy said, what do you want? And he said, we want you to take your staff and leave this country. <laughs> you have caused so many miseries because of your policies. There are a million people who are jobless in this country. And then they tried to bring in the people, the Shabab Tahrir Square. So the Shabab Tahrir Square sent a resounding no. We refuse to come and talk to you. In any case, that was at the American University of Cairo, which is on Tahrir Square. So I mean, it's not a matter of moving from one place to another. So I thought that was before, because the World Bank was there. And when push comes to shove, they will all, you know, the regime will all reorganize. Today, in the, yesterday in the newspaper, the minister, the, she's a woman, I can't remember her name, of social affairs, turned down a million dollars. What do you say? I don't think that's correct. Yeah, that's true. It's in Al-Masri Lyon. It was in the newspaper. Wait a minute, there's a debate about this as to whether it's an old hoax that's been recycled. So, um... Yes. Well, at least the three, the three initial ones mm -hmm. I have witnessed. And so the labor unions, the revolutionary youth, and the Minister of Planning was there telling the World Bank, this is your limit. Now, whether they will be able to come again, whether this is a hoax, which I don't know about, uh, the, there was an, a news item in the Al-Masri Liam, which is a large circulation newspaper, which says that the World Bank, ha the, the Minister of Social Affairs has rejected a loan, a million dollar loan from the World Bank because it was not appropriate. They didn't say it rejected all the World Bank presence. But when you start to become, uh, <coughs> you know, when you start to think about them, you stop going, and that's only a million dollars, you know, it's nothing. It's, it's not a big amount of money. But that's the initial steps that indicate that things are starting to change and to move in those countries. Although I think it's going to be long and laborious. Robbie, have you given any thoughts to the, I know you put a lot of emphasis on that, and you're absolutely correct, and the Arab world really is political. What has happened to the land reforms in the Arab world, in particular in Egypt? As you all know, land reform is really at, at, at the core foundation mm -hmm. of the three offices. Uh, how we factor, how we factor, uh, I mean, do, we, do you have any kind of... Yes, yes, indeed, absolutely. You know, no Arab regime, um, and I'm talking about the nationalists, Arab regime that hid behind some kind of uh, hybrid social nationalisto-islamisto regime, you know, Ba'ath being one of its uh, manifestations, but there are Nasserism being another of its manifestations, went through land reforms fully. In Egypt, for example, there were never real land reforms. Land was not redistributed. L land was divided, parcelized, and then rented by the, by the original owners in the land, the notion of ownership was never addressed 
it remained the ownership of the bourgeoisie, but became rented at very, very low, you know, I mean, they froze the land to the to farmers. And the rents were symbolic, and the rents were frozen by law, until Sadat's law of 1992, which liberated this land. And tenants had five years to organize themselves, and after that, it was just the market. And so, land rents started to increase, and I mean, what's going on today in Egypt is, I mean, absolutely, you know, it's horrifying. So what would you do then? How would you address the question of land reform? Since land lies at the heart of bread and butter, mm. and security probably defined. Where, where do we go from here? How do you address the question? You're right. I think that it, it, the, the whole notion of private property of land has to be re-evaluated completely. Uh, in the Arab world, by the way, private property of land is quite recent. As, as, as you know, I mean, it's 100 years old, less even. In places like Syria and, and Lebanon, it's the mandate that brought the notion of private property. Until today in Lebanon, by the way, f formally and officially, the land is not under private property. It's all Amiri land, which belong, kind of belongs to the state, but you can you know, inherit it. It's open on the market. You know, it's all of that. So the whole notion of the ownership of land, but that notion hits really, really hard into the uh, formal economy, economic system that we have inherited, you know, taken and applied. So today, people want to own land. And we, we've talked you know, about that. It's, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's really big, but I'll give you just a simple example. The oil surpluses are sank into land because the increase in land prices is tremendous and really quick. So when you liberate land prices, you immediately write them off agriculture. And if you look today at, at, at Jordan, anybody who knows Jordan a little bit, any Jordanian here? Anybody who knows Jordan a little bit <laughs> will tell you the biggest problem in Jordan today is, one of the biggest problem is the mammies, you know, the grab of la land, huge tracts of the commons by the royal family and the people around it. Because this is the easiest way. And, and of course, if you know about Lebanon and, and the Hariri era and the reconstruction of Beirut city center, that was also a huge land grab. And these land grabs are valued at tens of billions of dollars. I mean, it's not a small amount of money because the price of land, the areas are really big. So the whole notion of ownership, which was brought to us by the cadastre through a system of state simplification, that notion has to be reviewed. Land has to, one way or another, be available. In one way or another, land tenure, be available to the people who work it. That is the basic essence. It sounds extremely revolutionary today, but I mean, that is the essence of it. Land is, belongs to those who work it. That's it. That's the bottom line. It can't belong. It is an aberration that it belongs to absentee landlords who live elsewhere and who leave it to, you know, in, in, en friche, you know, in, in, without being worked when people could produce on it and construct livelihood from it. Yes, that's it. Uh, hi, um, my name is Katrina Natman, I'm a master's student at SOAS. Um, I just wanted to ask if your work could look to call it the role of the um, human rights regime or international human rights framework 
um, in food security and whether you could comment a bit about the effectiveness of such a, a rights framework in addressing yes. these issues. Yes, you're, I, I, you know, the, the essential problems, you know, I have avoided using the word rights throughout my talk, you know, on purpose, and I've used entitlements instead. Because rights obfuscates class, you know, I mean, you know, completely, and 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 it has been kind of. While rights, in, in essence, is a very, but I mean, you know, is a very interesting and very uh, positive uh, value, uh, it has also been taken over by a certain discourse that has been depoliticized, that wants rights, but does not condone the means to achieve those rights. You know, this depoliticization of the notion of rights without the means to achieve these rights is what makes the whole, the whole uh, uh, concept, you know, to have been watered down. Similarly, you can talk about notions of freedom, democracy, etc., which have also been, you know, uh, cooked in liberal sources uh, to the extent that they don't taste anything anymore. Yes, well, we have a question in the back, and then we'll come back to four judges who didn't identify themselves. You said uh, quite a lot about uh, issues of development uh, uh, of, of uh, agricultural uh, production. One of the points that are now being pushed forward in terms of policy uh, by World Bank, by uh, 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 lots of us uh, directly, is the question of the efficiency of small-scale farming as opposed to uh, the large-scale industrial uh, farming. I don't think you, you sort of touched on that, you touched on the product mix mix that's been uh, pushed, uh, the trade policies that have been uh, pushed, but I think this is uh, a, a, a crucial question given the heavy urban concentration of, uh, in the region. Mm. Well, I mean, there are many reasons that I haven't addressed that. One of them is the issue of time, and, and you can find all of that in my book, with Farmer and Freedom, which I urge you to buy. But, uh, but, <laughs> but uh, now, in joke aside, that you know, the the issue of efficiency is also complicated because large scale and small scale is not sufficient as a descriptor in order to be able to immediately jump in and say, you know, that's more efficient, that's less efficient. You can have small scale farmers who are extremely efficient, who have family labor, who uh, you know work uh, every little uh, little furrow, little piece of land and who have demonstrably been shown to be more efficient than large-scale enterprises. But you also have the opposite, because you have farmers who do not have access to education, to infrastructure, to any kind of support, <coughs> uh, to knowledge, to inputs, to labor, you know, who cannot be very, very efficient. The reality, however, be remains the following. It remains that with the land distribution as it stands today, and with the food prices as they are today, and you know, with markets, etc., the 
average land holding of the small farmer, you know, worldwide, is not sufficient, even under good management, to provide the livelihood needs for that small farmer. That is the big problem. You know, that, that, that's why, even at that level, land redistribution becomes important again. Or the creation of economies of scale. But as your family grows, as, you know, as the number of farmers who pool their land together grows, the economies of scale allow you to make a little bit of gains on efficiency, but not as significantly as to provide for the what I call the modern dream. And the modern dream, modernist dream, is very expensive to fund. It's brought to us through satellite TV, through the internet, through you know, cell phones, and it's very good. Parts of it, parts of it are very bad, but it's expensive to fund. You know, cars for everybody, etc., etc. So we have a big dilemma in here that's been exemplified by a lot of people talking about efficiency in agriculture. Let me see, I, I don't want to bore you with that, but I mean, just open the, the subject. Let me pose this to you, to which I don't have an answer, by the way. <coughs> you know, if you want to increase efficiency and returns from agriculture, you are going to have to increase labor efficiency. Increasing labor efficiency effectively means having less, fewer people work on the land. Having fewer people work on the land, you know, I really can't see how this is going to work before somebody tells me, what do you do with 15 million extra hands and their progeny who are not working anymore in a very efficient agriculture? What do you do with them? So we're stuck in between, you know, this increasing efficiency, reducing labor efficiency. And so the big challenge is to uh, develop farming systems and access to entitlements again, that operate without, yeah, with, without reducing, yeah, you know, without uh, uh, the, uh, the keeping labor efficiency high, but continuing to use labor. And that seems to be the most difficult thing to make in the whole world. My name is Barry Garfield, alumni of OSC, uh, interested in the subject. Um, just setting up this question that you've mentioned of changing the productivity of agriculture that may or may not throw off a great deal of surplus labour. And if we can take the example of cotton in Egypt, uh, I'd like to hear your views on this. One of the things about growing cotton is that you create the potentiality to have a cotton processing industry. Now that may be, or may not be, where your surplus labour will go. And that the result of that may in fact be a rising standard of living for everybody and greater security for everybody. So I'd like to hear your views on that. Yeah. Um, I want to make a comment on dumping. Uh, I didn't hear you mention the name of the biggest dumpers, which is probably the European Union, uh, because they dump all over the place with the subsidies that they Absolutely. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was the role of China which is changing in that it needs to secure um, resources, food, and how do you think that will impact on its rivalry with other with Western powers and how it will interact with um, the, the, the local countries that have to deal with it politically? 
Okay, there are three very important questions, and but I'll try to be brief because I think we're coming. Uh, are we do we have time? No, we have. We have okay, so I won't be brief. On the issue of cotton, let me say, you know, where I'm, at least me, I'm a pragmatist, you know, uh, in everything. I know that we need to have cotton in order to make nice clothes and 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 that uh, this is an industry that can have an upstream industry and people can go into it. You know, all of this is absolutely true. But you also need to, to be very, very wary of the whole notion of be, making commodities that are the prices of which are ruled by a market that's extremely volatile. And uh, that uh, with this, to go and purchase food, which itself, the, 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 the market for which is extremely narrow, you know, like for example, take wheat for example, you know that, 80% uh, of the wheat that is produced in the world is produced by small pr producers and eaten locally. All the wheat that is traded is about 20% of the whole world production. So these, these markets that are extremely narrow mean, imply that there is a lot of demand on them, especially from countries that are still growing, like China being you know, one of them, going back to the issue of China. So while it's important, yes, and then you can move labor into that, and you can do this also in the food industry, you know, and then uh, keep the value added uh, locally instead of sending it. The history has not been like that. History has been moving, uh, you know, increasingly towards uh, the pushing countries to export raw commodities that are produced using the water, because it's uh, water also is, I mean, cotton is a water guzzler. And uh, it's also very damaging because you use a lot of pesticides and fertilizer to produce cotton. So you delocalize. The, the bad environmental effect. Hmm? And even when you have a factory, you delocalize it to another place. And when you start, you know, when you start in a country, start to give rights to labor, you start to increase wages. You know, that's the first thing that, that labor is going to ask. That immediately forces a delocalization of your labor to another place, which, in other words, capitalists call this you are you're, uh, driving away investors because of the increase in the price of labor. They'll go to you know, Vietnam or to any other, to, to Mali, to wherever, etc. So none of this, I mean, if there is no uh, strict government control, state control over how this works, and in the current world in which we live, we have gutted the state from its control. The basic essence of the Washington Consensus is, hey, let's blow the state apart because it's worthless. So, so while yes, you know, that can be part of it, and today we produce a lot of organic cotton, the world, and there is a demand on it, and it's become mainstream, and this ca can go through it, one should not lose sight from all the implications of producing commodities essentially as a capital investment, rather than producing food that can feed people around, even if this costs temporarily more than importing it. The implications on diets, on culture, on land, on, on, on agrarian livelihoods are tremendous. But they are never factored in. They're never internalized in the cost-benefit equation. It's where how you decide what to do should be internal. You should internalize all the different parameters. People don't do that. So that was, you know, one. I hope I, I've answered a part of it. The, I, I'll answer the China one, and then because I forgot the second one, <laughs> the, the the China issue. I mean, China is a player. <laughs> China is a big player. Okay, it, I mean, there is no doubt, and the economy is growing, etc. But China has made also stretch to produce its own food. 
because it doesn't want to rely on market. But it has also done something that uh, you know, state capitalism is a capitalism uh, with state next to it. It's probably stronger than, than all forms of capitalism. And the Chinese foreign in, 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 in Africa and uh, you know, the, the big investments in, in uh, lands that you know, with deals struck through the states that fall under the category land grab, sometimes called neo-colonialism, new form of land colonialism, has also been uh, widely addressed. And China is moving into that. And it's moving into it not only on for, for food. It's, uh, it moves, for example, whenever uh, on oil, it has moved in exactly the same way in Sudan, for example. So you, I, I expect we see more of this. But at the same time, more kind of uh, internal production and more investments in places like the Philippines, like the Philippines. I mean, that's a big, a huge problem, rice in the Philippines. It's a huge problem. The Philippines produces rice, it exports it, and then it re-imports lower quality rice in order to, to feed its own people who are food insecure. While it, yeah, and you know, the, the, there's an aberration in the, these uh, corporate relationships. What was the second one? Oh, yeah, well, you know, I mean, I, I, I kind of, you know, I put it as a, as a tale of the empire, you know, kind of part of the whole big economics. I mean, I didn't want to go into the, but Oxfam's report, by the way, because it's in, because Oxfam is located here, I mean, destroys them completely on their subsidies. There were a couple of slides on the subsidies of the European Union under landscape multifunctionality and uh, ecology. And here we do some, I mean, you do, you know, Britain does some stuff that's not dissimilar. And you know, at the end of the day, that's also one of the big, uh, big contradictions posed. How, how, do you, how do you deal with, uh, with rural life? Should these countries stop being food producers and import all their food from southern nations? And, and uh, you know, I'm not even sure that's a good thing. I, you know, there is the need for a big reform in the food system. And the reform starts with not by cutting subsidies from uh, Europe, by removing those subsidies and pouring them into Africa. And not through the Gates Foundation, or through Monsanto or Syngenta. And not through development industry. There are many other ways, or microfinancing, you know, which makes every single little farmer a small capitalist. Well, it's not better. It's not. It's not. It doesn't work anyway. It doesn't work very well. Any other questions? We just ask one. Who is this report available? Which report? The report you're saying you talk about in a research and report you're doing with the Oh, with the IPS. Yeah, I, I think it'll take another two, three months, and you know we're still there. Still is field work in Gaza. Uh, so I'm not going to search for it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's really difficult to go yes. to Gaza. Kind uh, of blockade. Even if you're American. I mean, I, I, I can't go, but she's American. She's been having terrible trouble getting in. Yes. I wanted to ask you again about the land. You mentioned the farmers and the land and the entitlements of the owning land. Now, uh, is it still practical to speak of entitlements of nomads or 
indigenous groups over uh, land. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, music, music, music. The issue of Bedouins in the Arabic, the issue of the Badia, and you know, is is one in which the Arab nation state has uh, how, how, how does one say politely screwed up? <laughs> you know, you know, the biggest screw up that they've ever done in the world because they wanted to move. It was, you know, it's a combination of uh, of creating borders and boundaries and being worried because nomads pass and you know Bedouins pass everywhere. It's a combination also of uh, of uh, grabbing the land. It's a combination of looking at patterns at, at you know food systems and saying you know we don't want to eat uh, sheep anymore or drink sheep milk or to eat sheep uh, 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 dairy. I mean, although now with, you know it's becoming. In, Mode. Again, we want to have cow, and so that we can import uh, large amounts of uh, feed from the U.S. You know, and feed and um, uh, import the cows and transport, move all of this. Uh, you know, this farming system, destroy it, damage it from Morocco all the way to Yemen. The Bedouin farming system, which is actually quite, you know, reasonably productive if one takes care of it, and I'll give you an example right now about it, has been forcibly, cold blood, you know, neglected, not neglected, destroyed. Settling the Bedouins, settling the Bedouins, yeah, was the Arab League's, the Arab League's policy. And that's one of the few policies in which the Arabs, well, not one of the few, <laughs> unfortunately, not one of the few. I was going to say one of the few, but unfortunately it's not in which the Arabs and the Israelis do to the same group of people. The Israelis always want to settle the Bedouins, and they're among the most oppressed groups in the Nakab Desert and in the West Bank. And at, uh, at, uh, towards, uh, you know, in, in Galilee. And the Arab governments everywhere have done exactly the same. And part of it was about land. Part of it was about fear from mobility. You know, and part of it was about uh, you know a cultural sense of backwardness associated with that. They like sheep. We like cows, <laughs> <laughs> preferably in steak form. There are a few parts of the world that used to keep cows, but anyway. Uh, no, no, I'm, in, 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 yeah, cows, so. uh, you know. Okay. But I'm saying Holstein, I mean, that what yeah, we have now is all that. I wanted to give you a, a counterexample. Uh, a counterexample is in Iran, they've done the opposite. They have supported and, and fostered the Kashkai, who are one of the biggest groups, and who provide 30% of the meat need of Iran. And Ministry of Nomadic Affairs. Yeah. Actually, does something in the region. <laughs> in a positive sense. Uh, yes. Maggie Parker Hudson, I'm an LSE graduate, interested in the subject. Yeah, this is out of ignorance, but um, you've done a great job and I'm taking extensive notes on how various policies are all wrong in almost large farms, small farms, government, private, <laughs> everything. So I guess my question is, you also said you're a pragmatist. Where in the world is there something that you would say is the right way that agriculture should be organized? Or what's the closest to it? And how can it be tweaked? It's, it's a genuinely serious question. Where is there a model 
that doesn't push out one of the boundaries that then makes it either oppressive yes. or gets rid of personal freedom because yes. each of the things kind of, yeah. if, if you push in one, it, it, it hurts the other. You're, you know, you're right. I mean, you point really at, at, at the, you know, the, it's the same question, exactly, which is prop to you and I acknowledge it and I accept it. When you talk against capitalist regimes and then they tell you, well, show me a re another regime that has worked. And so you say, is the answer, does the answer have to be, so we accept neoliberalism as, you know, the catechism of economy because it has been pervasive and invaded everywhere and we don't have any other means of showing something else. So it's the same kind of question and in fact they're embedded because one food system is one part of a larger economic system and large approach. Now, that being said, uh, there has been since, uh, and to go back to the rights issue, and more, more food democracy rather than, than, than right. Uh, there has been, for the past 15, 20 years, a big movement, a peasant movement, that has emerged from the grassroots, that's exemplified by groups such as La Via Campesina, who have been campaigning for something called food sovereignty, which I did not call food sovereignty here, but I have talked about it throughout, because sometimes when you call it like this, people just shut their ears and don't want to hear about it anymore. And there were you know, on the right to produce, the right to be a peasant, the right to, you know, uh, to conserve food culture, etc. And food democracy, and, and these people are millions, literally tens of thousands of farmers groups from Latin America, throughout Africa, and some of them in Europe. Very few in the Middle East, for many, many reasons, and too long to go into right now. I'm a member of, of one of, I'm one of the members of the group. And last, week, I think, or 10 days ago, Evo Morales from Bolivia declared food sovereignty the central pillar of the new agricultural policy of Bolivia, which puts the onus on them to go into this whole redistribution, the whole rights, the whole support to small farmers, small peasants, etc. So while, you know, we, we do not have a system that I can come and, you know, and put, and this is due to to the pervasiveness of the Washington consensus of the past 50 years. Everywhere, every single country in the world. They've put their finger and they've changed everything. In places influenced by grassroots movements, such as Bolivia, and also the UN has uh, uh, agreed to <coughs> acknowledge these groups, La Via Campesina, as observers status in the FAO. So things are moving in that direction towards the institutionalization. And I will tell you that within these movements, within these movements, there is a big debate as to whether we should accept to be institutionalized within the UN system <laughs> or we should reject this institutionalization and take over the whole world. <laughs> and, uh, and, and go, you know, and don't laugh. Because that same debate we had with the Arab youth, whether we should accept to be taken in by the regimes, or we should go into the streets and overthrow the regimes. And when we said overthrow the regimes, people laughed just as you did. And look what happened. We can, of course, end on that triumphal note. <laughs> 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 <laughs>